It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Are most cryptids merely urban legends, a case of mistaken identity, or is there something more to the mystery? Are all the Bigfoot reports the most compelling and consistent of all the cryptid sightings, amongst the many others to include the Mothman, Dogman, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, and the Thunderbird? Is there a possible paranormal element to these unexplained sightings? And of course there is the age-old question, if these creatures really exist, why have we not found any physical evidence of them? Longtime cryptozoologist and author Ken Gerhard joins me to discuss his many years of research into these mysterious creatures. Well, greetings, fellow truth seekers, and welcome once again to Passion for the Paranormal, bringing a passion for the paranormal to you. I'm your host, Curry Stegan, and uh, I'm so excited to be back here with you once again. I hope you are all staying safe during these crazy times. Uh, tonight, I've got uh, longtime cryptozoologist and author Ken Gerhard joining me on the show. And uh, very excited to have Ken joining me to talk about his research into all these strange and mysterious cryptids. Uh, if you haven't been over to the website yet, please pay us a visit there at passion, the number four, theparanormal.com. And uh, there you can catch up with some past episodes. And uh, you can also sign up to receive the newsletter. So uh, just so you know, we don't put you on any sort of email list uh, other than to just receive the email newsletter. And uh, so we hope you'll uh, sign up to receive that. Uh, if you haven't been over to the Facebook page, please pay us a visit at facebook.com slash passion, the number four, the paranormal. And uh, get ready to get into this discussion with Ken. I'm really excited for this. Uh, just one more thing. If you happen to know of a family member, friend, or coworker who you think would like to tune into the show, please share a link with them and make sure you hit the subscribe button to whatever podcast app you're using out there. Okay, uh, very excited to talk with Ken. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into the show. Really hope you enjoy tonight's episode. Okay, so my guest tonight is Ken Gearhard. And Ken is a well known cryptozoologist and field investigator for the Center for Fortean Zoology and a consultant for several research organizations. He has traveled the world searching for evidence of sightings of mysterious animals and legendary beasts, including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, and other strange cryptids. He's co-hosted the History Channel's Missing in Alaska series and has appeared on multiple other TV series to include History Channel's Ancient Aliens. Ken is also the author of several books on strange cryptids to include his latest book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. Ken, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. Good evening, Curry. Uh, I must say it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, Ken. Uh, amazing uh, background you've been doing this. Sounds like you've been at this for a long time. Uh, and uh, maybe if you could, uh, I always like to hear a backstory from my guests about how they got into you know, doing what they do. And for you, maybe if you could talk to us about how you got started in this crazy field of cryptozoology and in researching and investigating these mysterious creatures. Well, um, for sure, uh, people ask me that quite a bit. Uh, 
obviously it is an unconventional life choice to do this kind of thing full time. So, um, but uh, my story starts when I was a kid. I mean, uh, like many young boys, I just, um, you know, I always tell people that I was, uh, I loved animals and uh, the outdoors, and I also loved monsters and monster movies. And uh, when I first learned about cryptozoology and creatures like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, that was, you know, that was it for me. I mean, that was the coolest thing I ever heard of, that there could be these sort of mysterious, unknown creatures uh, in the remote corners of our planet. So, um, yeah, I saw a TV show about Bigfoot when I was a kid, and that really had a big impact. And I think that same year I uh, I was at the Minnesota State Fair, and I saw an exhibit called the Minnesota Iceman, which was, you know, supposed to be like this dead Bigfoot that was frozen in a block of ice and... Um, so all that stuff kind of happened around the same time. But, you know, what I like to point out is that uh, my mother was a huge influence. She used to tell me about the Yeti and the Mothman and other strange creatures. And um, uh, she was also a travel agent and very adventurous. And so she took me on vacations all over the world, uh, South America, the, the Amazon jungle, the Australian outback, Asia, Africa, all these exotic places. And wherever we traveled, uh, I was always researching uh, different uh, legendary beasts wherever we were and um, then when I was 15 years old my family vacationed at uh, Loch Ness in Scotland and um, that's when I attempted my first field research I had a little movie camera and a you know a notepad and I was interviewing people around the lake but I uh, wasn't still at that point wasn't something I wanted to do for a career but um, you know years later uh, it's just been a lifelong passion and uh, a couple of decades ago or more, I hooked up with some Bigfoot investigators here in the state of Texas where I live and began to go out in the field, and uh, things just kind of snowballed for me. It was very exciting, and uh, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have opportunities. I've written some books and been on a number of television shows, and uh, I love doing lectures, and uh, so yeah, I've never had... We may get into this later in the interview career. I don't know. I've never had a sighting. Of course, people want to know that. Did you see it? I know other investigators that have had that kind of life-changing epiphany where they had a Bigfoot sighting or other encounter, and that's how they got into it. That wasn't the case for me. It's just been a lifelong uh, dream of, of mine. Yeah, interesting. And you uh, took the words out of my mouth. Uh, that was going to be my next uh, you know, comment is that normally – for a lot of people, and for a lot of people out there, whether it's paranormal research, uh, you know, researching UFOs or cryptids, uh, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, a lot of times it's a strange experience or encounter they've had yeah. that's kind of pushed them into the field and made them want to get answers. So this is interesting. I'm a paranormal investigator, and uh, I never had any uh, experiences of seeing apparitions either. So, you know, I can kind of uh, understand, even if you mm -hmm. haven't had a sighting or your own, you know, personal experience early on, how you'd still want to come into the field and, and investigate it. So, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, from your research, now you can you've researched all kinds of different cryptids, um, all kinds of different creatures, Thunderbirds, the Bigfoot, the Chupacabra, all these different types of creatures. Now, based on your years of research at doing this, is there one of these that is really the most compelling to you? So first question is, is what is the most compelling to you? And the second is, what do you enjoy researching the most? Wow, those are both tough questions because I have diverse interests. But um, uh, as far as the most compelling, you know, I have a, a working list in my head of, I think, the most probable cryptids out there. Uh, some I haven't investigated, but I still think there's a lot of evidence. I think number one on the list would be something called the, the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger, which is a carnivorous marsupial, uh, a wolf-like marsupial that used to be endemic to the island of Tasmania and also the island of Australia. And um, I've never been there on an investigation, but I have colleagues who have. And this, this is an animal we know was in existence until 1936 when the last specimen supposedly died out, but there's a lot of evidence that these animals are still out there. There have been tantalizing videos, photographs, tracks, sightings, and so I think that's a very likely one, and I, of course, I would love to go out there and do some field work on that one. Um, second, I would say um, 
Bigfoot, but more specifically the Orang Pendek, or the short man of Sumatra, which is kind of a pygmy-sized version of Bigfoot. I just The reason I say that is because Sumatra is one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, and new species are being discovered there all the time. So, you know, it's uh, it has a lot of potential, but uh, of course there's a lot of evidence for Bigfoot. It's very convincing. And, um, you know, third on the list, I would say lake, some of these lake monsters and aquatic cryptids, because, you know, the the oceans and seas of the earth are so unexplored and so deep and vast that certainly there are things there that we haven't found yet. So those are kind of my most likely cryptids. And um, I'm sorry, I got so caught up in there. What was the second part of the question? Yeah, so, uh, so the first... The, the, most likely, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. the first was the, the, yeah, the uh, most compelling, and then the second, what you most enjoy re- researching. Oh, enjoy, yeah. That's, honestly, Curry, I'm... I'm fascinated by all of them it's hard for me to really pick a favorite um, but what i often tell people is that i'm in the field of cryptozoology i'm kind of recognized as being the specialist on thunderbirds which are these massive monstrous birds that have been reported by people all over the, the country and uh moreover there are native american legends sort of disparate north native american legends all over the continent that talk about these thunderbirds the name Thunderbird is a reference to the beating of their wings, which either sounds like thunder or creates thunder. Uh, but I've interviewed many, many people, very credible people, that swear they've seen these birds in modern times. And we're talking about, you know, 15, 20-foot wingspans. They're just truly gigantic, bigger than anything known. So that's kind of, you know, those are near and dear to my heart because I kind of got started in the field on, on Thunderbird research, and I, I like to specialize in, in those sightings. Yeah, and uh, the the interesting thing uh, about the Thunderbird. Now, I don't know if you're familiar, and you probably are uh, familiar with the Chestnut Ridge uh, area. You know, Seth mm-hmm. Breedlove yeah. did a documentary on that. I had uh, I had Stan Gordon on the show a few years back, talking about his research into the area. And uh, this is one of the th- reported sightings in that area. And uh, if I remember correctly, uh, some people have said they almost look like flying lizards, but I'd like to get your take on uh, what exactly, uh, based on your research, what these things are, what they might be, and what they look like. Well, you know, that's a great question because I actually have two main categories of Thunderbird reports that I've collected, and they're kind of split down the middle in terms of what people describe. About half the people say that these thunderbirds are birds, that they have feathers, and usually like a solid dark-colored feathering uh, or plumage, and that they have kind of hooked beaks like hawks or raptors, uh, vultures, kind of exciptorids is what they're called. Um, and then other people, the other half, tell me that, that what they saw was very prehistoric looking, and they often liken them to pterosaurs, which are not birds at all, but specialized flying reptiles that were, you know, alive for 150 million years up until the, the end of the Mesozoic era, about 65 million years ago. There's no evidence they survived beyond that, but, you know, the, the people that have seen these these reptilian thunderbirds say that they have kind of leather, that they don't have feathers, and that they have kind of bat-like wings, uh, kind of membranous wings, and uh, that they have heads like you know, uh, with teeth or, you know, not so bird-like. Sometimes they have a crest on the back of the head. Sometimes they have a long tail, reptilian tail. So it's very confusing. I, You know, it's hard to accept uh, that there could be two different species that are that remarkable that are still unknown. So it's, it's a real head-scratch, right? You know, I don't know which direction to go other than to assume that, you know, a lot of it has to do with perspective and perception and that many of these Thunderbird eyewitnesses you know, the, the way that they interpret what they're seeing, that some may think that it looks more prehistoric or some may think it looks more bird-like, even though it's not. So it's it's very confusing. Yeah, I could I could see how that would be. Um, you know, it's just like a UFO sighting, and, you know, people are kind of excited, and, and uh, you know, that maybe they're trying to grab a phone to take a picture or whatever. And, you know, some of these probably happen pretty quickly. So... I can imagine uh, amongst all that kind of uh, you know fog, it might be it might be hard to remember all exactly what you'd seen, and and you know there's there's been studies on this when people see something, and then the longer they go, the more they really their brain tries to remember and interpret what they did see, 
you know, it, you know, they get less and less detail as time goes on about what to remember about it. Um, I wanted to uh, get onto the topic a little bit into Bigfoot. I know this is a big area of interest in cryptozoology, one of the biggest. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess this applies to all cryptids, really. This is this is the big um, question that a lot of skeptics raise, and that is, uh, where's the physical evidence of these creatures? And uh, if we don't have any physical evidence, then how can we say they exist? Mm. Yeah, that is a great question. Yeah, um, There's actually a, an entire chapter in my new book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, that's dedicated to that question, which is, the lack of remains, because it is, from a skeptical point of view, and I always try to approach this stuff, uh, Curry, with a very objective and kind of grounded approach, so that is, a, that is a strong question. It seems like at some point we would have physical, have acquired physical evidence of these creatures, because they're big, <laughs> you know, presumably there sure. are a lot of them, and, you know, maybe... Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In the low thousands, and, um, you know, if they're flesh and blood, then they die and leave remains. And if, if they're living and breathing, they leave other things in their environment. So, you know, it's a complex question, so I'll try to encapsulate the answer as best as possible. But, but the main points that I want to make is that um, I'm convinced that these animals are extremely rare, exceptionally rare. I, I mentioned population in the low thousands. That's, those are estimates based on not just my own opinion, but other opinions of academics. But um, that would be the minimum breeding population that would be required to have a sustainable, viable population that goes on and on for thousands of years so you know they're very but still even a few thousand spread across all of the continent from alaska to canada to florida to texas i mean you're talking about a very rare animal and there might be as many as a thousand bears for example for every bigfoot or sasquatch so that's how rare they are so that's the first thing second thing is that they are kind of i believe adapted to avoid human contact that they recognize homo sapiens are their greatest competition and their greatest threat and therefore they take great pains to avoid us by living in areas where we hardly ever go the remotest areas they're very nomadic they seem to be nocturnal moving around a lot at night so that's another thing as far as you know when they die which they obviously as we as we said they have you know they would have to expire at some point um a lot of animals or specific types of animals, I should say, when they die, uh, are hard to, it's hard to find the remains. And the examples I always use are bears, mountain lions, and wolves. Those are kind of apex predators out there in the North American wilderness. And those animals hardly are ever killed by any other animal. They are rarely hit by cars or shot by hunters. And um, maybe bears more so than the other two. But um, So when they are feel like they're going to die or they're sick, they may obscure their bodies. They may climb into, like a lot of animals will do this, they'll crawl into a, you know, low brush or a hiding place and until they hopefully get better, but a lot of times they die while they're there. And so then the remains are now obscured, they're hidden somewhere. Uh, and the last thing to consider is that nature actually takes care of remains fairly quickly. You know, even a large elk carcass, for example, that, you know, that dies in the wilderness, I mean, you've got bacteria and 
parasitic insects and birds and scavenging animals that come in and they, you know, they literally scatter the remains, they eat the flesh, the bones are scattered. And so at that point, um, you know, even a large animal can, can dissipate pretty quickly in the wilderness. And the last thing to consider, I think, is that, you know, because of Bigfoot, its remains would be large bones. Um, a lot of people might find or see those bones when they're out hiking around the woods or whatever, and they just don't think anything of it. You know, they step over a big femur or a, a body. Oh, they're, wow, it must be a moose or a bear or who knows. But, you know, so there, there may in fact have been examples of people that have come across Bigfoot remains and just not thought to collect them or do anything about it because they just didn't think it was that remarkable at the time, you know. So there's a lot of answers to that, but um, uh, but it is frustrating as a researcher that, that no one has been able to find any conclusive uh, physical evidence at this point. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the direction I want to go here, because you just offered some, you know, possible prosaic explanations, and, uh, you know, this is a show about the paranormal, uh, mm. and uh, I had Ron Moorhead on the show um, several months back. Uh, his latest book is Quantum Bigfoot. Uh, I mm-hmm. believe some of the Native American tribes believe that uh, Bigfoot had supernatural qualities. Mm-hmm. Can we rule out the fact that uh, there could be some interdimensional or, you know, paranormal type aspect to this creature or any of these creatures? Well, that's a that's a frequently asked question, Curry, and I guess it's a fair question in light of the lack of physical evidence, as we just as we discussed. Um, I know Ron Moorhead, great guy. He's been investigating Bigfoot for 50 years. I'm certainly in no position to question his experiences. I haven't walked in his shoes or or experienced the things he's experienced. Um, So he has a different, but still he has a different perspective than I do. I'm not an advocate of theories that regard the supernatural and so forth, just because I, you know, I tend to look at the Bigfoot phenomenon in the big picture. And the big picture is, um, consists of thousands of eyewitness accounts that date back, you know, decades and that have been documented and logged and archived. And um, they're very consistent for the most part. And the vast, vast majority of those accounts describe an animal that is behaving perfectly nat, that looks and and behaves perfectly natural. Uh, The most often, the most frequent sighting of a Bigfoot is it's crossing the road in front of a car at night and they catches it in the headlights. Uh, they're often seen in the woods, drinking water, scavenging for food, peeking out from behind a tree. There's really nothing that supernatural to me about those behaviors. I mean, that just sounds like an animal that's out there seeking food, doing what it does, moving around. So I haven't experienced very many, you know, I, I haven't really even interviewed a lot of witnesses that have had really extraordinary supernatural or paranormal types of experiences. They're usually very natural encounters with these things so that's that's my perspective curry i'm looking at the big picture which is you know the the accounts that describe you know bigfoot vanishing into thin air or uh footprints that disappear in the middle of nowhere or any of those types of things in my experience those make up a very very small fraction uh of of the reports and sightings so i just don't think that you know i think looking at it scientifically you really have to look at the evidence and the evidence dictates that it, it seems to be a natural animal. Moreover, things that look like Bigfoot actually did exist in the past. We have fossil evidence of hominids uh, going back two, three, five million years that basically looked like Bigfoot. They were upright walking apes, if you will. Most of them were smaller, but they may have evolved into larger sizes. Some of them were more robust. So, you know, there's another clue. I mean, if you have something that looked like Bigfoot that actually did exist as an animal species on our planet, uh, then to me it's, it's a natural to draw that, that conclusion and say, well, then maybe there's a relic population of these things still around. And the last thing I think is a question of sociology and, pers- you know, again, going back to perspective and perception. But virtually everyone that asks me about Bigfoot being somehow paranormal, interdimensional, extraterrestrial, demonic, whatever you want to call it, virtually every person that asks me that is somebody that is a paranormal researcher or a UFO researcher. So, <laughs> already they have, so I'm just saying that 
my point is that we all have biases, Curry, and that's not a bad thing. It just means that everybody's different, and we're, we're biased by our experiences and our interests. And so people that are interested in the paranormal, it's natural for them to sort of, you know, to look at Bigfoot initially as perhaps an extension of that phenomenon and to wonder if there is a connection to something that they're already sort of interested in and, and invested in, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I, I certainly understand your point with that. We do all have certain perspectives and lenses that we look through as we're looking at things in the world. Uh, I just want to mention a couple of places that seem to suggest there is some sort of paranormal type activity going on, and that would be Skinwalker Ranch here mm-hmm. close to me in Utah. And then I, I already mentioned Chestnut Ridge. Now, We've had UFO mm-hmm. sightings and Bigfoot-type creature sightings across multiple counties. Uh, you know, again, the Thunderbird sightings. But some of this is being reported around the same time frame. Uh, mm. There's been reports of people shooting at these things and, uh, you know, to no effect. So I, 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 I understand where you're coming from. You're coming from more of the scientific perspective. I just say I don't think we can throw out the possibility that there may be more to some of these phenomena. And I'd say those two areas may be at least some, perhaps some indication that there may be more to it. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, there's also, you, you've also forgot about Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, which is a, another hot spot where there have been kind of UFO, Thunderbird, Bigfoot, Black Panthers. And here in Texas, we have a place called the Big Thicket. And there have been sightings of Bigfoot, uh, glowing lights and different things, kind of weird like that. So it is interesting we have those kinds of window areas. So I'm going to throw you a curveball, Curry, and I'm going to say, what if some of these areas there is a presumably a mechanism that stirs up or manifests different types of anomalous phenomenon, whether it's strange lights in the sky, Bigfoot, UFOs? What if that mechanism creates some type of manifestation that looks like Bigfoot. It's not truly a Bigfoot, but for whatever reason, and it could have to do with a person, you know, we're having to influence people. We're getting into all kinds of cosmic theories here, but essentially if there's an ultra-terrestrial intelligence or mechanism that is able to manifest all of these different things, you know, maybe there's a, uh, a causality behind why it's choosing specific archetypes, and one of those archetypes might be a big, hairy, man-like creature. So in essence, what I'm saying is that I acknowledge that there might be a related phenomenon or unrelated phenomenon that looks like Bigfoot, if that makes sense. And I, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around, but uh, that, that's as close as I can get to, to offering some type of explanation for that. Sure. And I think some of the accounts of uh, Bigfoot-like creatures in Chestnut Ridge area uh, I seem to remember in the uh, documentary, Seth Breedlove's documentary, that some seem to have these strange red eyes, and that's not really consistent with, Mm-mm. you know, some of the normal Bigfoot sightings that people are having in the Northwest or other places. So, uh, yeah, I certainly think that's a possibility as well. Um, perhaps there's some other anomalous phenomena behind all of these other types of sightings in those few places that I mentioned. Yeah, a, a good point there. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about, this is another very interesting phenomena, and that is the Mothman phenomena. Mm. Um, John Cale wrote the book, The uh, Mothman Prophecies. Very interesting subject. I was wondering if you could kind of shed a little bit of light on what's your research, based on your research, what you found out about these strange sightings. Yeah, that was actually a very nice segue, Curry, because... John Keel was actually an investigator who he had labeled something that he referred to as the comic trickster, which a uh, cosmic trickster, I'm sorry, which was basically he felt that Bigfoot was related to UFOs, uh, ghosts, paranormal, all of that stuff he felt was the same mechanism that was basically manifesting in different ways, just as I said, and that it was its intentions were to somehow uh, you know, mess with our heads in some way and just kind of, you know, confuse people for whatever reason. John Keel uh, wrote about the Mothman as well, and of course he spent a lot of time investigating, and he wrote the, the iconic book Mothman Prophecies. 
I've also written a book about flying humanoids. It's called Encounter with flying, Encounters with Flying Humanoids. Um, it covers the Mothman, but it also takes a global look at the phenomenon because I've actually investigated things like Mothman in places like Mexico, here in Texas. Uh, there have been accounts and sightings all over North America, in Europe, um, parts of Asia. Uh, so it seems to be that whatever Mothman is, there are similar things that you can find all over the globe. And the physical descriptions are somewhat uh, different, uh, but there are some commonalities and things that, that might connect this phenomenon. Uh, but Mothman, of course, is the most famous, and it's been reported mostly around the little town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The sightings, most of the sightings date back to 1966 and 1967 where hundreds of people claimed to have seen this creature that was basically uh, man-like in many respects, but with bat-like wings attached to its shoulders and uh, large glowing red eyes. And that was the main feature that people were really transfixed by, these giant red glowing eyes. Um, Mothman seems to be kind of the opposite to me of Bigfoot in terms of it is, uh, it is I'm convinced, fairly uh, paranormal in nature, uh, it seems to be some type of metaphysical phenomenon that has physical properties when it's here. That is, it, it does seem the people that see this creature think it is, they're convinced it is flesh and blood. Uh, but, you know, it just, from its physical descriptions, it really just doesn't jive with anything we know of in the natural world or the fossil history. Its behavior uh, is hyper-aggressive. It chases people. It terrifies people. It just doesn't seem like any type of... Uh, species that we know of in the animal kingdom. Uh, but it's a fascinating prospect that you might have this kind of spectral, winged, humanoid-type creature that manifests in different places all over the world. Based on all this research you've done, all these different cryptids, what has been, as far as physical descriptions, what do you think has been the most consistent among the various reports in terms of physical characteristics? So we're talking about all of them? Yes. Any, which one do you think has been has the most common characteristics physically uh, from all the reports? Oh, gotcha. Well, definitely, uh, again, Bigfoot, uh, or it's similar, it's cousins around the world like the Yeti. and. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, the Yeren, the Yowie, the Barmanu, there are many different versions of Bigfoot around the world. But uh, again, looking at thousands of eyewitness descriptions of Bigfoot, they're all fairly consistent. People describe a bipedal, that is a two-legged, man-like creature that has long swinging arms like us and fairly long legs, uh, covered in hair except for parts of the face and uh, palms of the hands, soles of the feet. Uh, it has very, very broad shoulders. Everyone says that its shoulders are extremely broad and that it doesn't appear to have a neck. So that is, its head is kind of set right on top of its shoulders. Uh, basically meaning it just has very powerful muscles that connect the shoulders to the, to the skull. And, you know, the height, the average height of a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch has been reported about seven and a half feet tall. Um, 
So those are, you know, that's a pretty consistent model or archetype, and you can find that, you know, if you're reading through hundreds or thousands of Bigfoot sightings. Um, I would say another example would be things like our lake monsters and sea serpents. So again, like the Loch Ness Monster and its cousins around the world, which include the Lake Champlain Monster or Champ of uh, Vermont and New York, Ogopogo up in western Canada, uh, similar creatures from Sweden, Iceland, Russia, Japan. Um, and what people have described in terms of the lake monsters, it's usually like a, a multi-humped creature. And, of course, people are only seeing the part that comes above the surface of the water, but uh, something that's about 40 feet long with multiple humps that moves in a vertical undulating motion and that has kind of a horse-like head attached to a long neck that sometimes pokes up out of the water. And those descriptions, again, are very, very consistent throughout hundreds, if not thousands, of documented lake monster and sea serpent accounts. So those two are very, very consistent. Interesting. Uh, you've investigated, as, you, as you've already talked about a little bit, all over the world. Is there a certain spot geographically that you've investigated or are looking to investigate that you are the most fascinated with uh, and, dare I say, maybe want to continue researching or want to research? Oh, wow. Well, if you're talking about a bucket list, it's pretty long. Um, but, um, <laughs> I, love, uh, I love traveling. I love exploring. Uh, I love uh, kind of jungle habitats. I've been, as I mentioned, to the Amazon jungle. I've investigated and done expeditions in the jungles of Central America, and I just really love any of those habitats. I would love to, to check out some of the jungle areas in Africa and Eastern Asia. I think the one of the pinnacles for cryptozoology would be the, the Himalaya uh, range in, uh, in Nepal and Asia, where, you, of course, you have the Yeti, and the Yeti is, is kind of an iconic figure in the field of cryptozoology, and there's something vast and mysterious about those, those mountain ranges in, uh, in Central Asia, where, you know, the, the, the rooftop of the world with Mount Everest and some of those other peaks, and, um, of course, it's a very low population density. So those, those, you know, any any jungle area and perhaps the mountains of Asia. Uh, and as I said earlier, I'd, I'd love to also travel to Tasmania uh, and investigate the uh, the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine. But, uh, you know, I could go on and on about that, Craig. I mean, they all, they all fascinate me, and they all kind of have their own sort of uh, lure and um, mystique about them. Now, uh, you... You indicated earlier that you actually have not had any of your own personal sightings of these creatures, but you've obviously been out investigating, um, you know, say, for instance, the Bigfoot phenomena and all the, uh, you know, the outings you've done and research. What kind of uh, other occurrences have happened? Have there been strange noises or other types of things that led you to believe perhaps you were in an area where there may be a Bigfoot or other creature? Yeah, for, uh, for sure. Um, I'm convinced I've heard Bigfoot vocalizations on a few occasions. Uh, I did not have a visual sighting of whatever was making the sound, so I can't say definitively it was Bigfoot or Sasquatch, but this is based on my lifetime of, of being in the outdoors and different habitats, uh, but particularly here in Texas where I've done a lot of work and uh, while investigating an active location on August 18, 2003, um, I was with some other researchers, and we were camped out at a remote lake in North Texas, and we had heard that there were some Bigfoot sightings in the area recently. And uh, just after dark, we were hiking around the lake, and we heard, and I also recorded these deep ape-like grunting noises. Uh, that were about 40 yards away from us in some dense brush. Now, we couldn't see what was making the sounds, but it sounded just like an ape, very deep, very powerful, uh, kind of sinister, because it almost sounded like a laughter, but it was kind of like heavy breathing and laughter and grunting all kind of mixed together, if you can imagine that. Um, we moved to a higher vantage point. Uh, we couldn't get through the brush. It was pretty thick, so we moved to a higher vantage point. And we shined a spotlight down where we heard these noises, and we observed two eyes reflecting back at us. Uh, they, were not, they were not red eyes. They were kind of a yellowish-green color, and we couldn't tell how high they were. Um, and then we, we set up camp there, and throughout the night, we heard these strange, sorrowful, kind of wailing, moaning calls echoing throughout the night. 
sometimes in response to our calls. And then the following morning, we were finally able to penetrate the, the thicket where we this thing had been, and uh, we found deep human-like tracks as well as some anim uh, mutilated animal carcasses, uh, basically turtle shells that had been ripped in half from top to bottom. So that was the most convincing thing that, that night and uh, the following day was, you know, to me at least, fairly convinced, became fairly convinced that I had encountered what we know as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. But again, I can't say definitively. And then there have been a few other occasions where I've heard vocalizations that primate-like vocalizations in different wilderness areas uh, of North America that I, that I think were Bigfoot or Sasquatch. So that's those are the most compelling things that I've experienced. Now, there's been other Bigfoot researchers out there that say that sometimes these creatures seem to kind of toy with uh, with people as they're out in the woods, uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of throwing rocks and, yep. you know, making noises. I don't know if that's to scare people or just to kind of, you know, mess with people. I mean, I mean, what are we dealing with here? I mean, do they have kind of a strange curiosity towards us? Do they, uh, are they trying to scare us away? Or do you think in some cases they just like kind of toying or messing with people? Well, as I said, I'm convinced that they have adopted an avoidance behavior uh, towards humans, homo sapiens. Uh, they do seem to be very curious about us, and there are a lot of accounts of them peeking out from behind trees at people. Uh, even and rarely peeking in people's windows at night, particularly in very remote areas. Uh, but all the things you've described have been described by many, many uh, experiencers as far as uh, large rocks hurling out of the woods at them, uh, the, the vocalizations that I've experienced. I'm convinced that those are all territorial displays. Uh, like any animal, uh, if you surprise it and get in, go into its area or its habitat or its, you know, where its food source is, uh, it's going to want to chase you out of there. And uh, different animals have different ways of doing that. Um, you know, I'll give you a, a, a mundane example, but sometimes if you ever walk up on a squirrel and you know how they start chirping at you and twitching their tail and they're trying to act aggressive, you know, they're, trying to, they're basically mm -hmm. trying to scare you. And, some people might be freaked out by that because even a squirrel could cause damage if it wanted to. But anyways, any animal will defend its territory and its habitat, and I think this is the same with Bigfoot. And I think the stone throwing is a big part of that. I think the vocal demonstrations are a big part of that. But here's the thing, Curry. Some people have claimed that they've been chased by Bigfoot, okay, that Bigfoot chased them out of an area and ran after them. In many of these cases, the people claim that Bigfoot seemed to be much faster than they were, or capable of moving at a much faster speed, and yet it never actually catches anybody, okay? In fact, I can think of a couple of different incidents where people were being chased by Bigfoot, and they were running, and then they ran out of breath, and they had to stop, and they basically were just giving up or surrendering, and they claimed that the Bigfoot would also stop and wait for them to start running again before it took off after them. Now, that sounds like a perfect example of an animal that's basically just shooing you away from where it doesn't want you, you know? But, you know, this is all speculation, of course. There's no true experts. I'm not trying to present myself as the know-all expert, uh, you know, in the Bigfoot field. I'm just saying, you know, these are things that kind of make sense uh, from a scientific perspective. Now, I had uh, a year or two ago, I had William Sheehan on the show. He wrote the Bigfoot Tear in the Woods book series. Mm -hmm. From from your perspective, is there any reason to fear these creatures? I mean, even to the point, do you think they've killed people at times? Uh, I mean, is there something to fear here? No. I, I do not think they are uh, aggressive or have any ill intent towards humans. I think like any animal, they will defend their territory. Um, I think if you were to surprise one, or if it, particularly if it had, you know, presumably it's young or something like that, you know, there could be a, the potential for a bad situation, just like any animal you would encounter in the woods, a bear, a mountain lion, or anything. But again, those, those animals typically are reticent uh, towards humans, and they will try to avoid co uh, confrontation with us. So I, I'm not, certainly not an advocate of these theories of Bigfoot being a murderous, uh, sinister creature or a cannibal or any of those things. I think a lot of that has to do, again, with social perspectives and uh, you know just the fact that we often refer to Bigfoot as a monster 
and people like to sort of emphasize the monstrous qualities. Oh, it was big, it was scary, it was ugly, it smelled bad. Um, you know, so what I try to do is kind of push back on all of that and try to filter out a lot of those uh, sort of monstrous characteristics that we adorn these creatures with. I think that they are they are big and scary and ugly because, you know, they're bigger than us, so they're hairier and they look kind of like us, and so that is all kind of scary. But no, I don't. I don't think that they're out abducting or, or killing people at all. Interesting. As far as um, when they roam, uh, you know, what time of day are? Do you think they are primarily nocturnal? I've heard some researchers say we own the day, they own the night. Um, from your perspective, do you think uh, they dwell at night more than during the day? Well, there's a lot of evidence they do. And um, again, going back to the eyewitness accounts, there have been statistical studies done on these, you know, masses of, of, of Bigfoot sightings that have been collected. And, you know, people will put them into computers and try to find different uh, patterns and things. One of the interesting things is that about, about half of all Bigfoot sightings occur at night. Well, you could say that people are typically not, humans are typically not as active as at night, right? Particularly in wilderness areas. That's when people are camping, they go to sleep, they don't. So the fact that we have that many, that percentage, 50% of Bigfoot sightings occurring at night is a strong indicator that they are nocturnal and that they are seen more or the potential to see them more at night is there. And it would also make sense, again, from an adaptive perspective, because if they're trying to avoid human contact, then they would understand it. You know, but that's not that unusual, because a lot of animals uh, are nocturnal uh, or crepuscular, meaning that they're active at dusk and dawn and maybe a little more active at, at night. Now, that doesn't mean that Bigfoot is never active during the day. I would say that uh, they are primarily nocturnal, but just like any animal, they might their sleep pattern might be interrupted and they might have reasons to move around during daylight hours to seek food, water, or shelter, or whatever. So, But yeah, I think that the evidence kind of indicates that they probably are primarily nocturnal. Interesting. And uh, you also have uh, looked into the chupacabra. Uh, mm -hmm. Interesting creature. What exactly do you think these creatures are and, and where have you found evidence that they may dwell? Well, the chupacabra is a perfect example of what I refer to as composite identity. And what that means is that there's one name that's being applied to different uh, creatures or different phenomenon in different places. And people always ask me about this because there are vast physical descriptions, disparate physical descriptions of animals that are called chupacabras. For example, in Puerto Rico, uh, where we first heard of the chupacabra starting in the 1990s, uh, people were describing this three-foot to five-foot tall kangaroo-shaped creature that hopped around on its hind legs. It had giant eyes. It had spikes going down its back, kind of reptilian in appearance. Um, and, you know, there, were, there weren't a lot of eyewitnesses that saw this thing in Puerto Rico, but some did or claimed they did. And then fast forward to, you know, 2004, uh, and here in Texas, um, chicken farmers began shooting these dog-like animals, canids, uh, that were really weird-looking. They were hairless uh, for the most part. They had really long canine teeth or fangs. They had kind of a bluish tint to their skin, and they had other physical abnormalities. They were really grotesque-looking dogs. And because those animals were actually shot, and I've examined a half-dozen of those so-called chupacabras here in Texas over the years, um, the remains of those animals. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. They were coyotes, they were feral dogs, they were wolf-coyote hybrids, but they looked really weird and unusual. Um, But, you know, the commonality is the name Chupacabra, of course, is Spanish for goat sucker, and it's based on the premise that these creatures are essentially blood-drinking animals, um, that they go in uh, like a vampire bat, if you will, and, and instead of eating the flesh of an animal, they'll kill it and they'll, they'll drink its blood. Now, there's no physical evidence that this has actually happened anywhere. This is all assumption. Uh, and uh, But I've interviewed some chicken farmers that claim this is the case, that these Texas chupacabras were coming in and killing their chickens and drinking the blood but not eating the flesh, which is very unusual for a canid or any predator. So a lot of assumption there, but... Um, so, you know, again, I think there are different versions of chupacabras. I can't vouch. I can vouch for the reality of the ones here in Texas because I have examined the physical remains. Many researchers, including myself, we've kind of steered away from calling the, the Texas version chupacabras so much. In fact, we refer to them as the blue dogs, which I know it sounds kind of silly, but that's, you know, <laughs> they're dogs, and they have kind of a bluish color to their skin, you know, and uh, where they don't have hair. So, um, but you know, I haven't been to Puerto Rico to investigate that version. Um, I know that there are also a chupacabra. I have investigated chupacabra accounts in Mexico, and those, I believe, those uh, livestock killings could be uh, attributed to a, perhaps a mountain lion. Um, and I've also heard of chupacabra sightings from South America that include wings, like bat-like, giant vampire bat-like. So again, it's a, it's a. It's a cryptid that's basically a composite identity cryptid, meaning that people are applying one name, one label to different types of phenomenon and different types of creatures. Interesting. And have you seen any compelling video evidence of these creatures? Are we talking about the Texas version? Uh, yeah, yeah, more the dog-like version of oh, these. Yeah, yeah there's, there's the famous footage... Anyone that's ever seen a TV show about the Chupacabra has probably seen this footage, but there was a, a, a police officer named Brandon Rydell, and he was on patrol on a backcountry road, and this animal was running down the, the, the dirt road in front of his patrol car, and it, he recorded this thing on his dash cam, or not his dash cam. Um, yeah, I guess it's a dash cam. It's facing out the windshield or whatever. And uh, that particular piece of footage has appeared on a lot of TV shows, and it looks like just like the ones that I've examined here in Texas. It's a dog-like animal. It's hairless. It has kind of a weird snout. Um, it's just kind of a weird-looking, you know, almost like a looks like a dog mixed with a giant rat. But um, that's the best video footage. And then even a guy here in San Antonio, where I live, uh, videotaped one of these animals uh, on the side of the road back in 2009, I believe, and um, maybe 2010. And uh, that footage ended up on a, on a TV show that I appeared on as well. So, yeah, they've been videotaped. They've been photographed. The bodies have been found. Uh, but, again, it's not a cryptid. The ones here in Texas are basically just weird. Um, now, there is a mystery there in terms of why these dogs look this way. Some people think it's a disease. Uh, I tend to lean towards it being some type of mutation, uh, you know, physical abnormality or, or, you know, congenital defect or something along those lines. Sure. Yeah, maybe a mutated uh, version of a, of a, another type of dog type species, a coyote or something like that. Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask you about is uh, now there's also been reported sightings of black puma type uh, cats, mm-hmm. cats yep. in North America. Have you researched or looked into that? And if you have, what have you found? Yeah, I've investigated those. Um, it's pretty fascinating. And, you know, they're commonly referred to as black panthers or alien black cats. Now, what's fascinating, Curry, about these sightings of giant black felids here in North America uh, is that people that see, them, see these creatures don't often 
think that they are uh, cryptids. Uh, they, you know, they, they, for whatever reason, they've accepted that they are a natural part of the North American fauna. You know, that just like a mountain lion. They'll say, "Well, I saw a black panther. It was huge, and it was a despite." Well, nothing like that should exist in North America. Okay, the only truly big cats we have here in North America are mountain lions. Uh, puma, also known as puma concolor, pumas, cougars, and so forth. Um, they're very common here in North America, but they're not black. And there's never been a documented example of a black or melanistic, as we call it. Uh, melanism is a mutation. We're just talking about mutations. Melanism is another mutation that causes the, the coloration of the skin and the fur to be very black, darker black. Uh, so we've never had a documented example of that with a mountain lion. But people have claimed they've seen mountain lion-sized black cats throughout North America. And there are literally hundreds or thousands of those sightings that have been documented and I've even interviewed people that claim that they've seen them shot and killed, but frustratingly enough, the, the, the physical remains were never saved. Um, there are a few interesting theories about that. Uh, one is that there might, in fact, be a melanistic phase or morph of the mountain lion family that we just haven't seen yet and that science hasn't recognized yet. So there might, in fact, be black mountain lions. Very rare, but it's possible. The other possibility is that these animals are escapees that they're invasive animals like leopards and jaguars. Leopards and jaguars can be melanistic. About 11% of that cat population can carry that mutation of black color. And uh, that maybe that these animals have escaped from zoos or animal collections or things like that. And they've gone into the wilderness and kind of assimilated. And then the last theory is that these animals may be uh, black jaguars that have migrated up to the United States through Mexico. Now, they, there are jaguars in Mexico, and there used to be jaguars in the U.S. Actually, there are maybe a handful of jaguars in Arizona, as we speak, wild jaguars, um, and they can be melanistic. That's probably unlikely, though, that they would be able to spread out all over North America, and particularly when no one's reporting spotted jaguars, which are much more common than melanistic. So all of those are potential answers. And then, sadly, we also have to consider misidentification, Curry, because there are sometimes people that see uh, large black house cats or uh, large black bobcats um, or other animals that aren't even cats that look cat-like, you know, certain types of dogs and things. And, you know, just like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, you know, sometimes it's about, you know, people just get a fleeting glimpse of something, they're in a highly charged emotional state, and then their imagination kind of takes off from there and kind of, uh, you know, skewers or, or colors their perception. Interesting. Yeah, and you have appeared on the uh, Missing Alaska series. I believe that's on mm -hmm. the History Channel. Uh, and uh, could you talk a little bit, because I think this is going a little dif different direction. What part have you played in that show and in uh, researching strange disappearances? I think some refer to it as the Alaska Triangle, but what uh, mm -hmm. what has been your involvement in that? Yeah, um, so in 2015, um, I was a co-host on a series called Missing in Alaska. Uh, there, were t there was a team of three investigators, and um, as you said, the premise is that there seems to be uh, an area in Alaska known as the Alaska, Alaska Triangle, very similar to the Bermuda Triangle, where you have this rash of really you know, inexplicable disappearances. And in fact, Alaska as a state boasts a higher... Uh, percentage of disappearances per capita than any other state in the U.S. There are something like 50,000 missing person cases that have been documented in recent decades in Alaska that have gone unsolved. So people disappear in Alaska a lot, okay? And not just people wandering out in the wilderness, but entire airplanes have vanished. Uh, we investigated for one episode a case where this uh, military craft in the 1950s it was, a, you know, 46 people on board or something, and this entire airplane vanished. And uh, if it presumably crashed, they never found any sign of the wreckage. There was a vast search for this airplane, uh, you know, thousands of, of men looking for this, uh, this particular airplane, and they never found any sign of it. So there's a lot of things like that where things just seem to disappear or vanish into thin air. So for, um, for the series, we are investigating missing disappearances of different people, but we're also exploring a number of kind of esoteric explanations, including, you know, were these people abducted by Bigfoot? Were these people abducted by UFOs? Were these people killed by 
you know, certain legendary creatures that have, you know, Native Americans, uh, Native Alaskans have a, a number of legends about different types of creatures that are, you know, cryptids and mysterious. And so that was kind of the basis for the series. Uh, we didn't, sadly, we didn't solve any of the cases as far as the disappearing people. And uh, we really didn't come to any real solid conclusions, you know. I mean, it's, you know, so difficult to find sort of empirical evidence that, you know, any of these things have actually transpired. But um, but I had a great time making the series. And uh, Alaska, of course, is a, a fabulous place. Uh, you know, it's the last frontier, if you will. And uh, uh, many foreboding mysteries up there, for sure. Yeah, and uh, the missing, the strange and mysterious missing person cases, uh, you know, David Politis has uh, written about it extensively in his uh, Missing 411 book series. Uh, people just uh, inexplicably disappearing in national parks, that sort of thing. It is a, it, it, it is kind of an alarming thing to think about. Um, but it sounds like there's <laughs> really been no – some of these cases have never been solved. And uh, mm -hmm. I think as David Politis has, has indicated, uh, there's there's been situations where there's been no animal tracks, no blood, uh, you know, no um, trace of where this person went, how, um, how they disappeared, or they've disappeared right in front 20 feet, uh, 20 yards from – their family or friends, and uh, it's just such a bizarre uh, thing to think that people are disappearing so mysteriously. Yeah, it is, and uh, you know, uh, obviously, uh, Politis has uh, put a lot more time and work into that perspective. Outside of the series, I haven't really spent a lot of time on missing person cases, but um, you know, the, you said as you said, it's it's, it's pretty. Uh, mind-boggling how some people can vanish without a trace. Now, again, playing devil's advocate, one of the uh, investigators on our team is a, a private investigator and ex-law enforcement officer, and, you know, he would bring up some very good skeptical arguments. Uh, for example, a lot of people, and I didn't realize this, want to disappear. There are many, many people every year that make that decision to basically walk away from, from everything in their life and just, you know, never be seen again for whatever reason, and I guess that's hard for many of us to comprehend, but, you know, you can't rule out that kind of stuff that some people just don't want to be found, you know, and the, there may not be diabolical forces at play beyond that. Sure, yeah. It, uh, it, it, it does beg the question, are some people disappearing on purpose? Uh, well, Ken, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. Uh, just one quick question. Um, what do you have in the works? Uh, what's on the horizon as far as, books or any other types of projects or work you have uh, coming up? Well, thanks again for having me on, Curry. Uh, great interview. I appreciate all of your uh, wonderful questions, and I hope everyone that was listening in enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm working on a new book. I'm not really at liberty to disclose the subject at this point, but I think it's it's one of the, the, the heavy-hitting cryptids that I think people are going to be really interested in, so I'm trying to get that out this year. Uh, other than that, I've just been uh, promoting my new book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, uh, which is available on Amazon uh, in Kindle and print formats. And later this year, hopefully, if uh, uh, everything returns to a semi-state of normalcy, uh, I've got several public appearances or lectures scheduled. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference in Tennessee in July, uh, the Upper Peninsula Michigan Bigfoot Conference in August, uh, the Texas Bigfoot Conference in October, and hopefully the Mothman Festival in September uh, the Mothman Festival, we were talking about Mothman a while ago. They have a really fantastic festival up there every September. Something like seven to 10,000 people show up. So Mothman is vastly uh, popular, and uh, you know, I haven't heard anything definitive yet, but I am scheduled as of now to be a speaker at that event as well. Well, cool. Um, and uh, just real quick, where can people find your work, websites, uh, your books? What, uh, what sites can they, can they find your books and your work? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I have a website, KenGerhard.com. Uh, I'm also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, I have a YouTube channel, and I've just started uploading sort of brief uh, videos that, that explain different types of cryptids. So, yeah, pretty much a little bit, little bit of everything there as far as the social media world. 
Well, cool. Hey, once again, Ken, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a it's been an intriguing discussion, and uh, you have a great night. Thanks again for having me on, Curry. All right. Take care. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.